it's difficult to prove intent to a jury. But you walk in there with a confession, it's a done deal. I've got a whole locker full of these investigations. Why can't I just fictionalize them? They feel like they want to deliver a message or they want to teach readers all about what they did. And that's not what the reader wants. They want to be entertained. You're listening to Tom Golden, a pioneer in Frisco County, a CPA, former partner of PricewaterhouseCoopers, and author of financial fiction thrillers. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. What really holds back a lot of writers from beginning is that they have so much information they don't know where to begin. And I will tell you, the marketplace is brutal. Amazon publishes a thousand new books each day. Think about getting noticed when you're up against those numbers. In this episode, we discuss how Tom's first public company audit started his forensic accounting career, how his people skills created his successful career, what he would recommend to new fraud examiners, how he transitioned from CPA to author of financial fiction thrillers, and the best way to become a fiction writer. He is a CPA, a retired partner from PricewaterhouseCoopers, and currently writing financial crime novels inspired by real-life investigations. Tom Golden, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Oh, Robert, thanks for the invitation. This will be fun. It's a pleasure having you, and this is going to be a little fun. I've always been interested in writing as a career, and especially the novels has always been interesting to me, especially the fiction part. <laughs> How did you decide accounting as a career? Well, <laughs> It's actually a two-part tale. Um, 1972, I graduated with a degree in marketing. And, you know, what do you do with a degree in marketing? You got to go sell something. So I uh, went to work for the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, selling cigarettes out of the trunk of my car for about nine years. Not surprisingly, I, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. and didn't know where I wanted to go. And then one day, it was in, actually in 1979, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, and it talked about the coming consulting boom to the big eight accounting firms that uh, they did traditionally audit and tax, but now they're going to take on consulting. And the author of the article was, was mocking the accounting industry, saying, this is an industry full of geeks. They can't sell anything. This will be fun to watch. So I thought, well, heck, I'm a good salesman even though I only had nine hours in accounting <laughs> my undergraduate career. And I said, this consulting stuff, this could be good for me. I mean, with unwarranted confidence, I sat down and I penned a letter to all the big eight firms in Indianapolis. And I sat back and waited for the phone to ring. And of course it didn't. So I picked up the phone and I called them and I, I could only get through the screeners into one firm. And that was Ernst and Winnie, Ernst and Young today. And I got a hold of the HR manager. I told him my idea. And he was polite and he listened. He says, well, Tom, I'll tell you, you don't, you don't have any chance. I mean, you're not even going to get an interview. And so I persisted and I said, well, you know, give me some advice if I really don't want to turn from this, if I want to do this. He says, okay. He says, uh, you're 29 years old. He said, you're not going to get an interview. So you got to go back to school and get an MBA. Then they have to talk to you because you're going to come through campus recruiting. 
then you got to talk your way into the office interview. Then he said, the CPA, he said, you've only had nine hours in accounting. You got to somehow condition for the CPA exam. So I didn't even know what that was about. I took more notes. And the short story is that in two years, I had completed my MBA at Indiana University, and I had passed three parts of the CPA exam my first sitting. I go to campus recruiting. The recruiter, he looked at me, probably thought this will be fun. At the end of that interview, he, uh, he invited me into the office. I went into the office. I met with a bunch of people. And the last person I met with was the office managing partner, senior guy in the firm. He told me, he says, I'm really taking a chance on you, but I'm going to give you an offer. He said, I've never hired anybody your age, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. He says, you're right. He says, we're not into consulting now, but down the road, we could use you. The toughest part of the experience when I started was getting the staff people to accept me because they're all 22-year-old kids, right? I was 32 years old when I started at the firm. And people didn't think I was going to last, so they didn't even put me on their audits. And uh, it was kind of depressing, but I was persistent. And about a year and a half into it, I finally got my shot. I, uh, I was assigned to a public company audit. Uh, they were into a crazy kind of accounting for lease accounting using SFAS 13. And I didn't know any of that stuff. You know, I, I never had a class in auditing. I, I passed the auditing portion. That was the one I failed only after a year of being with the firm. Here I am sitting in the initial meeting with the partner and he introduced the client staff and I, and I was excited as I could be. And two weeks into this audit, I just felt something was, was wrong. I was talking to some of the accounting clerks. I was asking questions. Many of them were probably stupid, but they started helping me. And I started looking more closely at the leases. They just seemed odd to me. Different names, but all the signatures on the lease agreements seemed the same. Then I found out the lease contract manager was having an affair with the CFO. All the leases went from the sales force through the CFO's office. I, I didn't understand why that was the case. And the more and more I looked at it, at the end of preliminary, I was pretty sure something wasn't right. Christmas break came. I, uh, I struggled with what to do. I, I didn't ask my manager. Again, remember, they didn't think I was going to make it. Never had a class in auditing, 32 years old. So I didn't want to be embarrassed. So I just kept doing my own clandestine investigation on the side. I'd come in nights and weekends and I'd work with the clerks. They would help me. I was always good with people. And then I called one of my friends from the MBA program. He was a controller. His name was Bill. And I told him what I was doing. And he said, well, look, let's do this. Uh, he gave me a list of SEC filing documents, prior year work papers, permanent files. He said, meet me in the law library where we used to study and, and we'll go through it. And we met there all day. And when I came out of that meeting, I had a list of the things I needed to look at when we went back at year end to see if, uh, if we had a real fraud. So year end starts, we have two weeks and I am working my way down the list. I got to know the IT guy pretty well. He was running special reports for me. And now we are five days from earnings release and I still have not told a soul. In fact, uh, I got an invitation from the CEO's secretary, that party to celebrate another successful audit year was on Wednesday and here it is uh, Sunday. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, it's two o'clock Monday morning. 
and earnings releases that coming Friday. And I don't know what possessed me to this day, but I picked up the phone and I, I made a phone call. I didn't call my manager. I called the partner on the engagement. I got him out of bed. And he said to me, uh, he said, okay, it sounds like I, I've got a, I've got something to look at. I'll stop by in the morning and you can show me what evidence you have. And I, I screamed at him. We still laugh at it about that to this day. I said, you got to come in here now. So three o'clock in the morning, he walks into the, to the company and now he's not smiling. <laughs> and uh, I, I hand him my evidence package. This is 1985. You know, what's an evidence package? I only knew what I thought I should do from, from an old TV series in the seventies called Columbo. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I followed that basically gave my evidence package. He walked into a empty office and he slammed the door. And I immediately thought to myself, Tom, you idiot, you're going to get fired. This is stupid. And an hour later he walked out and he looked at me and he, he was, he was ashen. And he says, we got a problem. I got to assemble the board. And he just walked right by me. And I thought, yes. A few hours later, the whole board was was assembled. He had me present what I had found to them. And he said to me, he says, are you telling, telling us the CFO of our company is a crook? And I'm not sure how I responded. But then he yelled to somebody else. He says, go get him. And the CFO opens the door, he sticks his head in, he looks around, he kind of smirks. He says, oh, I didn't know there was a board meeting today. And then the, uh, the chairman of the board looks at me and says, tell him what you told us. So I, I said it. And he smiled and he said, wow, looks like I need a lawyer. He walked out of the room, he walked out of the company, and the rest is, is history. There was uh, the firm withdrew its prior year audits. I mean, they had done the IPO audits. That's five years of audits. They had done one previous audit subsequent to the IPO. This was this was the second cycle. They informed the SEC on our recommendation. And a few days later, I found myself talking to uh, uh, someone from SEC enforcement and the FBI. And that led to a whole year uh, working with the firm because uh, I had to testify before the SEC as their lead witness. I'd never testified before. And keep in mind, again, I never had a course in auditing. So they sent me on several trips to New York. I worked with outside counsel. I worked with the general counsel of the firm. And then my big day testifying in front of the SEC for a day and a half came and everything went well. A couple of years later, the company went bankrupt. All of its assets sold for pennies on the dollar. And I found myself sitting in the staff room one day and I said to my, I said two things. I thought, you know, this was a heck of a lot more fun than doing audits. And then my sales genes kicked in and I thought I could sell this stuff. I could sell this forensic accounting stuff. And so I started lobbying the office managing partner, the man who hired me and gave me a chance. And four years later, five years later, in 1990, 91, he gave me the authority to start the forensic accounting practice in Indianapolis. That's where it started. I never did another audit. And until I retired in 2008, I, I built the forensic accounting practice. They made me a partner in 96, sent me to Chicago to run that practice. When I retired, we had 
40 professional staff, including four partners, doing investigations around the globe. And that's how I finally got there. What type of credentials or degrees did you get other than the MBA? You got the CPA. Was there anything else out there that you got or was that it? No. So in in 1988, an association was formed in Austin, Texas. Today, it's called the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Yeah. Joe Wells started that organization. I owe everything with regard to learning how to do a fraud investigation from him and the people he hired. We're still friends today. Joe is a very unique individual. He reminded me of Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs came out. He made a product for a market that didn't know it needed that product. Mm -hmm. In 1988, he looked at the market, basically the world of auditing, and he said, this isn't cutting it. You know, we're getting frauds. These frauds aren't even being disclosed because everybody's embarrassed. They just cut a deal with the fraudsters and they, they move on. He's former FBI, and he knew that the market needed this service. And so he started building it in 1988. I met him and one of his partners, Joe Ratley, who's former cop. I started learning, and boy, learned did I learn. Uh, the first class I took was a admission-seeking interview class with Jim Ratley, mm-hmm. and he taught me how to interview. And I, to this day, put so much faith in the interview process. I will prepare my entire plan of investigation around the interview process. It may not happen, but everything I do in that investigation is geared towards ending it with an interview with the targets, with the subjects, whomever I think can wrap this thing up for me and try to get the admission. You get the admission and and you're a hero. There's no trial. There's just a sentencing hearing. The prosecutors will love you and prosecutors will typically walk away from white collar crime cases because it's difficult to prove intent to a jury. You walk in there with a confession, it's a done deal. I would agree with you on the on the interviewing side. Sending money from point A to point B is not a crime usually by itself. It's the mm-hmm. intent behind it, the purpose behind it that you have to figure out. There has to be somebody that's either wrote an email, knows it has the knowledge, something's going on that you can interview that will tell you the truth and tell you why yep. it was done, what it was done. That's really what it comes down to. And I would agree with you 100% on, on the interviews. It's very, very important on how to do a good interview. So later on, you decide to start writing as a career or as a side job. How did you get into writing fiction novels? It probably goes back to my childhood. I, I didn't have the greatest childhood. I had an abusive father, not physically, but verbally. He, he would denigrate me in everything I would do. As a young teen, I would I would squirrel myself away and I would write. In 2001, I began writing what, what turned out to be Sunday Night Fear is my first novel, which was inspired by a first fraud that I did as an, as an auditor that I was describing to you. I wrote about 80 pages in that manuscript, and then I got completely off track when um, Enron and WorldCom happened, and I ended up, um, I mean, that's a separate story in itself. What got me into fiction writing was that after I finished, I did a professional book for Wiley, a Guide to Forensic Accounting Investigation, and that really inflamed my writing genes. And so after I finished the Wiley book, I thought, you know, I've got a whole locker full of these investigations. Why can't I just fictionalize them? You know, writing a professional book, for those of your listeners who have, have done this, is very difficult. 
because it's got to be truthful. So there's a lot of research you have to do. What's great about fiction is that, first of all, all the plots for my books, the two that I've written in my future novels, are already done. I know it works because it's real. Mm -hmm. All I have to do is add the stuff to that novel that will keep a thriller reader interested. And that's the fun part. As my wife says, I think you write, Tom, because it's fiction and you can make yourself smarter and better looking. <laughs> so <laughs> I think she's right. The character is Sam Halloran, really me. When you're writing, are you working for PricewaterhouseCoopers at the time? Or is this something you retired, then started doing? What was the what was the time frame involved of how you got into from your textbook, I would say, to writing fiction? So I started in 2001. I did the Wiley book between 2002 and 2006. So I didn't pick up that fiction book till 2013. The practice started going crazy. I mean, we were doing investigations all over the world. And in fact, that's why I retired early, because I had done three months in India and then another couple months in a major high-profile Russian investigation. I was exhausted. An opportunity came up to pass the reins, and I took it 2008. We used to live in a condo on Michigan Avenue in Chicago in the Gold Coast area, and we didn't even own a car. But that wasn't me. It wasn't my wife either. She's from a small farming community. So we went 100 miles west of Chicago. We bought some wooded acreage, and we built a house. 2009, we moved in. And I started getting busy working around the house. I had a retired partner call me to do a couple of major high-profile investigations in Detroit that kept me busy until about 2013. And then in 2013, I was found myself relaxing again, and we decided to get a, a dog. So we went and we rescued a puppy. And one morning at 5.30, the puppy is crying, wakes my wife and I up. My wife leans over to me and she says, your dog needs to go out. Yeah. I said, my dog. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday was our dog. What do you mean? My? I let the puppy out. 15 minutes later, the puppy is asleep. My wife's asleep and I'm wide awake. And so I go down to my desk and I don't know how this happened, but my manuscript popped up and I, I looked at it. And I thought, wow, I haven't looked at that in years. So that was uh, the manuscript for Sunday Night Fears. I had written 80 pages and I started and what I learned, right, I thought it would be easy. I thought I'd type this thing out and I'd get a publisher and you know I'd be, I'd be famous in, in a year. And what I found was I didn't know a lot about the craft of fiction writing. So that's why it took me from 2013 to 2018 when I first published Sunday Night Fears. I had a lot to learn. I started listening to podcasts. I started taking courses at NIU. I took online courses. Then I got into writing groups and I was like a sponge. And I, I learned a lot about what readers want in a thriller novel. All right. So what do readers want in a thrilling novel? They want to be entertained. Uh, where a lot of people in our profession, Robert, who I've listened to your other podcasts, the guests are amazing. They're very similar to people that I've, I've worked for. And they're outstanding at their trade. For most of us, there's desire to, to write a novel and they have great cases like I had to draw upon. But where a lot of them go wrong is they feel like they want to deliver a message or they want to teach readers all about what they did. And that's not what the reader wants. Yes, the reader wants a plot 
that makes sense. You know, if you're a lawyer and you're going to write about a big case, it's got to be a case that works. Right. You know, John Gresham was a, was a lawyer and he knows these cases work. He's not going to put some fantasy in there because that's going to turn off a reader immediately. I, I like fiction, but this isn't fantasy. I'm, I'm not going to read this going forward. So I've talked to a lot of people like me who had great careers and they tried their hand at a fiction novel and it flopped. And that's the number one reason they want to be entertained. So, yes, uh, outline your novel with the real plot. But then you've got to put people in it, real people, like the people I have, uh, Sam Halloran. He's not a hero. He's anything but. He's a flawed person. He's good at what he does, but he's made mistakes professionally, ethically, morally. He has regrets. It's a real person. And then the other characters that I have in my novel are drawn from real life. I've met a lot of people around the world, uh, good, bad, indifferent and those people inform the development of my characters. Every one of my characters are bits and pieces of real people that I've seen. And what's fun about that is it causes me to remember good times and difficult times. So it's, it, that's fun going down memory road. But when I get emails from readers that talk about my characters and they say things like, I felt like I was sitting in the same room with Miguel. Wow, Veronica is just like my daughter. How do you create these characters so clearly? So that's the warning. For me, when I read fiction, I want to immerse myself in the story. And it's characters, for me, that make that story come alive. So you don't do a full chapter on the net worth method of proof? <laughs> no, no. And as soon as I read that in a fiction novel, I uh, I move on to the next one. From a practical standpoint, do you take like? And I'm speaking out of ignorance, but I'm also speaking out of curiosity. Do you the whiteboard this thing where the beginning and the end in the middle, or or do you put it on three by five cards? How do you get from point A all the way to point Z at the end of the, at the end of the novel? How does that how does that work? Excellent question, Robert. And it was a big struggle for me, you know, say for Sunday Night Fears. I have so much in my head. What really holds back a lot of writers from beginning is that they have so much information, they don't know where to begin. So my advice, first of all, is to just start writing. Just go down to your office, close yourself off to the world, and just start writing. And all of a sudden, it starts to come to you. Now, to your question about how do you organize this stuff, I was using word and i would set up a table and i would start going down through that table on the left side i would put scenes in no particular order a scene would come to me like when the partner walked into the company and i handed him my evidence package right i would just and to the right i start writing this scene and you're just jotting down some thoughts so that's when i started but fortunately today 2021 there are great software tools out there the one i use now is called plotter p-o-l-t-t-r plotter.com that would be a great tool for a new author because it has areas where you can put all your notes in you can uh, have various outlines there's a scene sheet and then electronically you can move scenes around very easily i was reading about writing and one of the things is just write down everything and then take out what has nothing to do with the story. Is that something that you do? Is that, I mean, you can't put in everything you know, so you got to take out a lot of stuff 
just to keep it interesting so people still turn the page? So one good thing to keep in mind is it's a conversation. The other thing to keep in mind is it's not really a conversation. Because if you would transcribe one of your conversations sitting around having a beer with a friend, no one would want to read that because there's just a lot of superfluous stuff in there. Right. But as you're writing, don't be inhibited by that. I read a book from Stephen King early on, very successful, fantastic thriller writer. He said the first draft is written from the heart. So he said, just write, don't edit, write and write and write and write until the novel's done. And then he said, the second read is from the head. That's when you start to edit. You don't want the craft rules to get in the way of your creative output. That's why he says to just write. And that's what I do. A lot of people will write a paragraph or a page or even a chapter, and then they'll want to go read it. And then they get bogged down in editing. Of course, they're going to edit. You're going to find a lot of stuff. That's one tip on the front end to write it. But now you got to suck down your pride. If you want this thing to be successful, you, you've got to put that in front of people that you know are going to be critical. One of the things that made me successful at PwC is that I always reached out to people who I knew would be honest with me. And many times, like before I would testify on a complex issue, I would find someone who I knew would disagree with me. I knew they would push back. I knew they would find for the weak points. You don't want to be giving your manuscript to your mom or your wife or your sister, and that's okay for them to read it, but they're probably not going to be as critical as an outside person. So you need two groups of readers. One is a beta group, and these are the most critical reader. You don't want friends and family. You want people that read thriller novels and are, are not afraid of giving you exactly what they think. I mean, my beta readers will write me emails. Sometimes they'll call me. Hey, Tom, I just read chapter five. I mean, th this is ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, do you want, you want women to read this book? You, you can't write that. Or if you do, you got to soften it. And so I'm like, okay, thank you. And I take another shot at it and I send it back and they could come back to me and say, well, it's better. It's better, but you still need to fix this. When I wrote Sunday Night Fears, one of my best friends, there was a, a scene in, in Sunday Night Fears where Sam was just being wishy-washy with some of his staff. You got to spice this thing up a little bit. He said, Sam needs to have an affair. I'm like, what? And then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, the real life situation was the, uh, the lease contracts manager had an affair with the CFO. So you know what? I think that's going to be good. And then when you're all done with that first draft and you have your beta readers beat up over it. Now you've got to put it in front of an, a professional editor who knows the market, knows what readers want. My editor is a great guy. He's uh, dean of the School of Creative Writing at University of Arkansas. He gets through my work fast, and he is not at all reserved in his suggestions. He'll just say, take this out. Tom, this book is 150,000 words. No one is going to read this book. And he said, chapter five, chapter six, chapter eight, just totally unnecessary. And you know what? That's going to hurt. When you have somebody read a chapter that you love, you think it's perfect. And they not only don't edit it, they tell you to take it out. You've got to have thick skin. And that took a little bit of time for me to get used to it. And it would for any successful person. You know, here you are, 60 years old. You've been successful your whole career. You've, you've written this piece and you've, you've got, 
some guy from a university telling you it's a piece of crap. Readers won't like it at all. Take it out. If you have respect for the editor you've chosen, take it out because 99% of the time they're right. What would you recommend to someone who's in the audience who just has this itch to write fiction and just wants to scratch that itch? What would you recommend to them? What would be the first couple of of pointers that you would give to them? You got to look at the marketplace. And and I will tell you, the marketplace is brutal. Amazon publishes a thousand new books each day. Think about getting noticed when you're up against those numbers. You know, the odds are really against you. So here's what I would recommend you do, because you don't want to waste your time, unless you're just writing for therapy or enjoyment or whatever. But if you're writing for the market, there are a few things you have to do. The first is you should write a short story. And I say that because every knowledgeable consultant in this business will tell you that you should not attempt to publish your first work. So take a story that actually could be a novel at some point, but make it a short story. A novel in the thriller market is about 80,000 to 100,000 words. Short story is about 35,000 words tops. And write that story exactly like you would write your novel. They're usually a three-act play. And then go through all the steps that you would go through if you're writing a novel for the market. What I mean by that is you want a group of readers. I call them beta readers. And these are people that are going to be very, very critical and are are not afraid uh, to tell you what they really think. You want people that are going to be honest with you before you go to a market of, of readers that don't know you. Again, if you're writing for the market. So write a short story, get beta readers, get an editor, have the cover designed, do all the things that you would do if you were writing a, a novel. And then with all this criticism that you've taken in and with your own experience, like with me, I looked at some of this stuff a week or so after I've read it. And I thought, this is, this is horrible because I've read a lot of fiction and I compare it to what I've read and I know it's bad, but I don't know how to fix it. Then you start listening to podcasts. You know, one I would recommend is Novel Marketing Podcast. That was the best one for me uh, when I started into this and I still go to them outstanding information that helps new as well as experienced novelists. And then I would start looking for online courses. There are a lot of them out there just to work on your craft. You know, you can take an entire course on character development, for example, and there are some very, very good books out there, but there's so much information out there that you really have to focus on one place to start when you're trying to hone in on your craft. And that's why I would suggest that uh, podcast, Novel Marketing. Start there and you'll learn a lot of different places that you can go to get more information. Since you wrote your fiction books, what opportunities have opened up for you? You're a forensic accountant. You're in a big firm. You're doing all these multinational living overseas for months at a time. You decide to take a break. You retire. You start picking up the pen and start writing these fiction books. What opportunities have opened up to you after you wrote these books, if any? Opportunities. Or maybe um, maybe you didn't look for opportunities. I'm not sure if there was like some side benefit to all this, or is it just the knowledge that, hey, I wrote a fiction book and someone sends me an email and says, man, I like this. So opportunities. Yeah, you know... I- I've had an exceptional career, thanks in large part to PwC. I mean, they hired me, they gave me a shot, they supported me in everything I did. And what I want to do now is I want to pay it forward. That may sound silly, but I've been 
blessed with having a successful career. And now I can meet new people. I'm a people person. If there's one thing I miss from PwC, it's running my own practice. I still mentor about a dozen people that I've I've met mostly through my writing. I, you know, I get emails from people around the world. I've got people that I mentor in, in China, in the Middle East, in Europe, Nigeria, Chile, and across the U.S. And most all of that is through my writing. So people read my books. Many of them are, are inspired because of what I did. Here I was a cigarette salesman. And at the age of 30 years old, I said, I'm going to change careers. I started climbing up a new mountain. And that's what I like to do to motivate the people that I, I meet through my mentoring. So many people are afraid to take a chance, do something different. And, and what I tell them is find the mountain that you want to climb and, and start climbing it. And a lot of that comes across in the character of Sam Halloran. He failed at almost everything he touched, but he had a lot of persistence. He, he didn't quit. And so I would say the greatest opportunity is, is in meeting new people and talking to them. And, and I love diversity and the fact that I'm meeting people from around the globe. There's so many different topics that we get to talk about, and it's a lot of fun. What would you have done differently, if anything, in your forensic accounting career? I mean, it seemed like you, you got in, we call it late, even though 30 should be late, but 10 years, you're 10 years behind the average college graduate. And then you stumble across this, did the right thing. And then all of a sudden, you're now put in a position where you're doing all these investigations for PwC around the world later on in your career. Was, is there anything you would have done differently? If I had it to do all over again, I might want to say, well, gee, I had a great career. I, I wish I started at, at 22, but that's not really the case because I learned so much from my failures. I've had a lot of failures. And when you think about it, so what made me really successful in my career? Was, was it my intellect, my accounting knowledge? No, it was my knowledge of people and human relations. I was given a book by my marketing professor my senior year. We were, we were going through uh, interviewing for a job. And he hands me this book and it's uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm -hmm. And I, I looked at it and I, I said, his name is Norm Booker. I said, Norm, I said, this is a book on human relations. How's this going to help me sell? And he kind of chuckled and he said, Tom, what you're going to learn, the secret to being successful in any career, but especially a sales career. He says, all you have to do is figure out what people want and then give it to them and then stand back and watch what happens. And I found that my whole career, not only trying to sell cigarettes, but when I would be trying to sell an investigation. You know, here's an example. So, so many people, when they meet a new person, let's say it's a networking event, mm -hmm. and uh, they want to sell an investigation, and they're talking a very successful litigation attorney in the city. And they're thinking, I'm only going to have a couple of minutes with this guy. I got to impress him with who I am and my credentials, or he won't pay me any attention. And that is so wrong. What I do when I meet a new person is I immediately look for opportunities to get that person to talk about themselves. Right. Because what they want is exactly what I want and what everybody else wants. We all want to be influencers. We want people to be interested in what we want. I'm not going to go up there and tell them, oh man, am I that my kid's baseball game, he hit a home run, he did this. No, no. <laughs> the first thing I'm going to ask somebody once I get past, hi, how are you? What's your name? What do you do? I'll ask him, I'll say, what's keeping you up at night? And if it's a lawyer, he's going to start talking to me about a case. Or if he's talking about his kid, I said, at the end, I'll say, so, so what else is going on in your life? 
He said, oh, my son, he just got accepted to uh, University of Chicago. So what am I going to do? Am I going to flip it to my kid who just graduated from Indiana? No. I'm going to say, wow, it's exciting. What's he going to major in? I'm going to focus every single one of my questions on what I know he wants. He's concerned and he's very interested in everything that happens in his life, particularly his family. And then when I leave him, I'm going to make a few notes. His son's name is John. He's going to major in biochemistry, starting at University of Chicago. His wife does this. His daughter does this. Because at the end of that meeting, I usually ask people, I said, look, you've got a really interesting practice. We have a few things in common. And I think I can learn from you. Do you mind if I touch base with you in a couple of months? What's he going to say? No. Of course, he's going to say yes. So now I have an invitation to call him back. So in a couple of months, I'm going to call him back. And somewhere in that conversation, I'm going to say, not all the things I learned, but I'm going to say something like, didn't you have a son that just started at University of Chicago? How's he doing? So how's he going to feel about me? <laughs> I just remembered something that he treasures. Mm -hmm. And I asked him a question about that. He's going to love that I asked him that question. Now a friendship's developing. And you know where friendships go professionally, they always lead to work and lasting long-time relationships. So what this guy taught me through giving me that book, Dale Carnegie, is that don't be so focused about you and yours. Give other people the opportunity to talk, talk about things that they're interested in. Because you can't sell something to somebody unless you know what they need. And how are you going to know what they need unless you probe them with questions? And that's the biggest mistake people make. So I thought so much of that book that I required every one of my staff people to get it, new people, when I hired them, I handed them that book. It's required reading for every one of my mentors. You use it as a reference manual because at the end of every chapter, he'll give you things that you will want to work on. For example, compliment somebody today. And, you know, I, I use this when I worked in the cafeteria back in college. I walked up to one of the cooks and I said, that's the best chicken noodle soup I ever ate. Can you give me the recipe? And this is a cook. You know, she looks at me like you're a college student, and, but it has to be sincere. And obviously she could tell that was sincere. And all of a sudden we have a relationship. Remember when I said that at my first fraud discovery, I never had a class in auditing. So how was I able to discover this massive fraud? It's because I knew what people wanted and I gave it to them. The receptionist, when you walk in, who remembers the receptionist's name? I do. I walk in the second day, the, right the day after I met her. I say, good morning, Carol. And I walk by her. How does she think of me? I just remembered her name. She's nobody. When I walk up to the accounting clerks, I'm a CPA. I'm with PricewaterhouseCoopers. They're just a lowly accounting clerk. No, I'll walk into their cubicle. And before I get to business, I'll find something in their cubicle that I know interests them. I'll point to a sombrero in the corner and I'll say, I'll bet there's a story behind that. And all of a sudden she starts talking, oh, we just got back from vacation in Cancun. We just had a great time. So you spend five or 10 minutes talking about something that she's interested in. And then you say, you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I, is it okay if I ask you a few questions? How do you think she thinks about me now? A lot different than if I just walked in there like some accountant and started throwing questions about her. That's why these people came to me on that first fraud discovery. And they helped me. I do that in every one of my investigations. And in nine times out of 10, we solved that investigation because someone in that company, actually One Honest Soul, which is the title of my second novel, One Honest Soul will come forward to us and tell us 
everything that's going on and solve the case for us. If someone wants to get into the forensic accounting industry, what would you recommend to them? What would be the first couple of steps? I want to be like Tom Golden in the early years. I stumbled in to a forensic accounting investigation. 1985, there's no association out there that would help me. There's no training. There's no college in the entire country that teaches even one course. But if someone's interested in getting in that field today, they don't have to do it that way because of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Go to acfe.com and join that organization. Don't just join it. If I just joined it and didn't get involved, I never would have learned what I learned that made me successful in fraud investigation. You got to get involved. I started taking classes and then you meet colleagues, you meet very knowledgeable people and then start getting involved in other things with them. Start teaching. I started teaching local chapter courses. Then I started teaching at the national conventions. Then I started teaching at the international conventions. And then I got involved in the board. You run for the board. I got elected to the board, and then I became the, uh, the chairman of the board. So what I'm saying is join that organization now and then get involved. They will take you beyond wh where you thought was ever possible. Don't expect to pay your fee, get the card, get the coolie, right? And then all of a sudden expect right. someone to call, make a phone call to you. It didn't happen that way. You have to raise your hand and walk up to them and say, I want to participate in the process. Where can I help? can't be an introvert and be successful in this business. The other thing is, too, if you, if you want to get into fraud examination, you got to do it with the thought that you're going to be a practice leader one day, not just the guy that sits in front of the computer. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you can make a career out of doing that. And for people who want to do that, that's fine. But for people who want to get into the market, make a name for themselves and become the best version of themselves, then you have to think about selling. You have to get outstanding technical skills. You have to hire and train the right people because those are the people that make you look good. In addition to all that, you have to get the right training. There's one other training I would suggest, and that is courtroom training. I did a lot of mock trials for an organization called NIDA, National Institute of Trial Advocacy. And even if you don't testify, they will teach you how to communicate complex ideas to ordinary people. I remember one NIDA training I did, my first one actually, and this is after I had already become successful at PwC, and I had done one courtroom testimony, and the lawyer in a nice way suggested that I go to NIDA training, and he said, you'll enjoy it, and you might pick up a few things. Boy, was he right. So NIDA training is you actually walk into a mock courtroom, they have a judge, they have other lawyers who are also trying to learn, mm -hmm. and then you go through a mock trial. And in this particular one, they had 12 jurors. And so I go up there and I give my testimony and I have exhibits and I walk through my exhibits. And at the end of it, I thought I, I knocked the cover off the ball. I mean, I had been successful before, so I, I felt pretty good about it. And then the moderator of the whole training, he says, okay, let me, let me uh, bring you into this room here and we'll watch the video. I said, what video? He said, well, <laughs> we have a video in the jury room where they're deliberating and you may learn some things from their comments. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. So I sit there with the other professional people. These are all lawyers in training. And that they start playing through the jury. And it gets to me. And some guy says, what do you guys think about that uh, accounting expert? And I kind of smiled with a sense of pride, thinking, oh, this will be great. And one of them said immediately, he says, oh, that guy, what an idiot. And I thought, I mean, I was in, in suspense. I was in another room. I, idiot. I thought I did great. I was the expert well, in the room. Yeah. 
Well, she didn't know what she was talking about. And then the next guy says, yeah, I didn't understand anything he said. And then another person said, and that exhibit he put up, I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I came out of that shell-shocked. A lawyer was sitting next to me, a more experienced lawyer, and he he said, how'd that feel? I said, man, that hurt. And he said, you want to get a cup of coffee afterwards? And he took me aside and he says, here's where I've seen experts like you really excel in the courtroom. He gave me two tips that I used every time I testified. And I was always on the winning side of every single case that I testified in. And, and here were those two tips. He said, when you put an exhibit up, you know, it's some bar graph or whatever. He says, you know it better than anybody in the courtroom. They're seeing it for the first time. Spend a minute and walk through the x-axis, the y-axis, what the bars mean, what the numbers mean. So they have some time to get comfortable with what you're about to tell them and then tell them. And then at the end, at the bottom of your exhibit, he said in big letters, put there what impression you want the jurors to walk away with after you testify on that exhibit, like no damages. So they have that in their mind the entire time you're talking about that. Mm -hmm. And I got that from NIDA training. So that's a, you wouldn't join that as an accountant, but you can look for NIDA training and they're always looking for experts to go through the uh, mock trials that they set up. I will be sure to put that in the show notes. I appreciate that. That's a good tip. Sure. That's a good tip. All right. You ready for the final four questions? Sure. All right. Final four questions. What is your biggest motivation now? Writing books. I stopped doing investigations. I did those two big ones in uh, Detroit and they were taxing and I enjoyed them. And actually, uh, one of them is the inspiration for my third novel that I'm writing right now. But I just want to write books for my market. It's difficult. I know being successful monetarily is a long shot. I'm not doing it for that reason. I, I really enjoy writing books and I want to continue writing books for the rest of my life. Is it the book writing that that motivates you or is it the feedback that you get that motivates you? It's probably the feedback because so I used to give a lot of speeches. Sometimes I'd leave the stage. People would usually compliment me. I was a pretty good speaker. And then one guy came up to me. He says, you tell a really good story. You should write a novel. And I thanked him and I walked away. And then a few months later, I did a speech and somebody else said the same thing. I told my wife and she said, you know, you are a good storyteller. Maybe you ought to try your hand at that. I took it seriously. You know, that 2001, when I started writing about that first fraud experience, I, I just wrote. I enjoyed it. I didn't really have a goal in mind. But then I started thinking uh, this could be fun. And then I just started writing and it just took off. What books or book has changed your life or thinking other than the one we talked about regarding Dale Carnegie? Yeah, well, Dale Carnegie, I, I just have to say it again. It, it's, it's a book that can change your life, trying to get, get people to, uh, to do what you want them to do. But um, for your audience, you know, for, for students and practitioners alike, I'd have to recommend Predictably Irrational by Dan Airely. And the reason I would say that is because um, people who are in the fraud prevention business, uh, they want to understand why people do what they do. And, and Airely is the best book I read. He's, he's a statistician, although he doesn't talk like one. And he gives real examples, empirical studies that he's done that makes you understand why people do what they do in the, in the fraud world. Great read. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months 
less than $100 now, that you enjoyed or made your job easier? If it's good enough for Tom Golden, it's good enough for the world, what would that be? <laughs> well, actually, it is silly enough, it's, it's a phone app. It, it's a phone app that enables me to consume the highlights of popular nonfiction books. Uh, you can read and or listen. Um, I do it over lunch and what I like to read are history, books on productivity, uh, leadership, investment. It's, it's an app called Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com. There's a seven day free trial um, and it's 99 bucks a year. But using this app, I can read the summaries of uh, books. The summaries take 15 to 20 minutes max. So I can go through three to four books a week. And if, if I really like one, I can, I can buy it. But uh, it's a great app. It'll, it'll help you in your knowledge of the job and, and also just fun stuff you might like to read and not want to invest in, in the book. Interesting. If you had to do something else, if you got fired today, could no longer be a forensic accountant and could no longer write, what would you be doing? <laughs> I'd be a long haul trucker. I know that sounds crazy, <laughs> but I, I thought about it uh, so much in my early teen years. Uh, I had an uncle that was a long haul trucker and, you know, those lonely nights back then, I, I, I thought of how I could escape my father. And I just thought one day I'm going to hop in a truck and, and never look back. Do you have a favorite trucking movie that you've watched going, yeah, that's what I want to do? Or episode oh. like Ice Truckers? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I've seen Ice Truckers, but what, what Duel, I think it was. Duel uh, was by far the greatest trucking movie I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it, it'll, it'll scare the bejesus out of you. If you ever think about honking at a trucker in front of you So watch it. Oh my goodness. Are you a big fan of the, uh, what's it? Oh, the trucking ballad. Uh, it's a convoy. Oh, convoy. Great song. Yes, yes, song. yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Well, I had a CB radio once and many of your listeners probably don't even know what that is, but yeah. I You're played I played around as a as a as a elementary school guy with uh, CBs were big things. Yes, I remember those days. I absolutely they do. Were. If they someone were. wants to get in, in touch with you, Tom, or wants to know more about you and what you do, what what is the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, the easiest way is just go to my website, tomgoldenbooks.com. All right. Very well. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for your, for your time. I, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's, uh, I feel like I'm talking to a forensic accounting rock star because you have been around. You're one of the godfathers out there. I just want to say thank you and congratulations on the, on the expose on the fraud magazine too. Very well done. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Robert. This was a lot of fun. 